You're listening to Tarot Talk, and I'm your host, Holly Ramey. I'm going to serve you some practical magic and give you tips and tools to bring the mystical into your everyday life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 43 of Tarot Talk. I'm your host, Holly Ramey, and I am super excited to be sitting down today with one of my first um, yoga mentors, Jillian Pransky. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you. Thank you. So Jillian and I met almost 11 years ago now. And she introduced me to the practices of restorative and therapeutic yoga, which very quickly became um, a little bit of an obsession, but also um, really the foundation, I feel like, of my healing work and my healing practices and really gave me a safe space to land and to evolve from there. So, um, welcome Jillian. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you define your work? Mm, It's a big, about (laughs) myself, about myself today, 2020, about my work. Um, well, I will say that I came to yoga in my very early twenties. Let's just like open the door there. And I came as an athlete as a corporate person, as a um, very enthusiastic, exuberant worker in the world. And um, I love being strong and I loved giving a lot of energy to whatever I was interested in, but probably or obviously to the detriment of my health and um, not always pursuing goals for uh, the most holistic reasons. So the long story short, is um, I eventually had a huge, we'll call it um, the beautiful way we call it now is a nervous breakout rather than a nervous breakdown. And through a course of health issues, really intense health issues, I discovered um, restorative yoga and stillness and the therapeutic aspects. And so rather than using my yoga practice to get stronger or more dedicated to efforting, my yoga practice became the place to learn how to release effort and allow a bigger energy to flow through me and uh, sustain me as I turned on my own self-healing systems. So really it became the yoga of relationship probably for the first time because before I was like, this is the yoga of me. Mm-hmm. And um, it was only in breaking down that I discovered um, that I had to open to something bigger than me in a way that I really understood my relationship with energy that was both personal and beyond the personal experience. And I, I think that became the, the, the playground for me in, um, I guess that was in the early 2000s or the late 1990s somewhere. Oh, no, wait, what am I talking about? Even earlier than that. Uh, But for over 20 years, my practice really has been a place to be in relationship with myself, with others, with with the environment and nature and with the energy that's unseen and um, we can't all agree on a name for it. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, that's what's most important to me now. Mm -hmm. I'm really... Creating, really, creating an opportunity to, to 
be in that relationship with more mindfulness and purpose. purpose. Um, so that's my personal practice. That's where I teach from. And here I am. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay. I love what you said about the yoga of relationship. And um, because that's something that I've been thinking about deeply this year and how we are in relationship with everything around us, not just, you know, our family, our loved ones, but with ourselves, with the earth, with our work, with our value, with our bodies. Um when we met, we met one week after one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And it was kind of like the suicide of my brother. I met you a week later in my advanced teacher training at Yoga Works. And the practice was kind of like being thrown like a life what is that called? A life vest, but yeah, I, life, oh, life. I was drowning, you know, like I was still in that shock state, um, that frozen state. And, uh, I feel like at that time I didn't even, like I said, I didn't even really realize what I needed. Um, but the practice gave me a relationship to, myself to just like being present in the moment um and gave me kind of an understanding of safety an internal relationship that you know I didn't even really realize was missing um and that's what I feel like is so beautiful about the practice because over time we just like continue to do it and then we grow the sense of self-trust safe space safe space within ourselves really that that trusting that we can that we are held Mm. that we can be with ourselves I remember that moment actually to be honest with you Holly um all those years ago that is also the interesting thing about when you're in the yoga of relationship it's amazing how the past is the present the future is the present like all of this vibratory experience really can um so easily experienced even when we're not in it and i i can in an instant bring myself back to being in that space with you and remembering um like you showed up you were there and you were also really sort of numb or mm-hmm. or 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 on hold mm-hmm. um but you offered your presence to me. I remember you coming up and, ex- and sharing what had just happened and explaining that uh, you might not know exactly how that was going to go for you. Mm-hmm. And you stayed and you, um, you allowed yourself to be there, both numb and feeling, you know? And I think you didn't even realize that you were doing the practice right in that moment of being with exactly as you were, Mm. you know, not rejecting your numbness, not rejecting anything that was coming up. Yeah, it definitely felt like, God, I'm so glad the stars aligned in that moment that I found you. Um, And I was so eager to receive the work. Um, 
and I, I, I think like you, I have that like ambition and that like really, um, just drive to like somehow figure it out. But, um, yeah, that from that weekend on, I continued to study with you for many years. And the yeah, pro- you, as- you assisted, you came away and assisted a couple of times as well, yeah. right? Or Palu and yeah. And I did all of your um, restorative 101 and 102 offerings and your therapeutics. So I kept coming back and coming back for more because I really knew that um, the practice had so much to offer me. Um, And that I think like you, I had at first approached my yoga practice as like with a lot of ambition, you know, and with a lot of, um, you know, and I was young and I was in my twenties and I had a lot of energy to get out and it was like vinyasa at laughing Lotus. And it was very like nonstop and fluid. And, um, even going to yoga works at first felt so boring. Like (laughs) (laughs) we're all the, we're only doing like five poses. Like I thought we were just supposed to move constantly. Um, and then, it was like the more I the more I practiced the less I needed and wanted to Mm -hmm. move um or at least in that way in that like super masculine way yeah um and that I think was the first time that I really experienced like the feminine side of the practice at all so can you talk a little bit about like you know, this approach of like the masculine and the feminine and how you, um, how you learn to like attune to that other side of yourself. Yes. Um, it's interesting because I heard myself say before I came to the practice for the strength and what I learned over years is that it's takes a lot more strength to soften than it does to muscle through something or even move through something. Water is a lot stronger than rock. We love those Chinese proverbs that talk about how water can wear away rock and that um, anything that is rigid and hard will eventually be reshaped and softened or reshaped by, overcome by fluidity and and, and softness of water. So for me, it took more courage to be soft and meet my feminine side, which I was simultaneously really longing to. I knew that that was missing. And I think that that's where we also come back to this word relationship. And there were phases in my journey where I was led by the masculine aspect, where then I was so eager to find my feminine, where I think I also may have come out of balance in the sense that I am now going to try to avoid or shut down my masculine and my strength um, to make room for and honor more fluid. And there's a place where that is, um, I don't want to use the word contrived, but in the trying on or the looking for or the wanting of it, there also becomes an effort. And I think it took a while before I even met that organic, holistic feminine rather than my idea of what the feminine was. And they were not the same, mm-hmm. you know. Um, to, to then eventually 
return to saying, actually, my birthright is my strength and my exuberance and my power. I, I have a lot of power in my body muscularly, and I have a lot of ability to follow through, which is seen as a very masculine type of a, of a, of a mental power. But so, so eventually I learned how not to reject those either because mm. there was a point in the journey where, well, if I was going to be truly feminine, then those are bad qualities. And I want to um, move away from them. So I think as we try on all these different archetypes and roles, it takes a while before we feel the true energy and experience of them and allow the oscillation, you know, just like there's an inhale and an exhale. There's a yin and a yang. There is a masculine and a feminine quality that um, allow us to flourish when we don't inhibit either of their organic flow. But the more we sort of balance in um, quieting, and, and quieting doesn't look like being still and not moving to me. Quieting to me and calming to me and even relaxation to me, me is much more like getting out of the way and allowing the circumstances and the energy of the present to be, ex to be, to, to be experienced rather than manipulate everything. Mm -hmm. So like calming, you know, if I try really hard to calm the chatter or to, um, I don't know, push, push something down, in a lot of ways they get louder. Mm -hmm. So it's in the stepping back and, uh, and creating space, really creating space for everything to rise and fall, for me is, is clear and calm and relaxed, which doesn't mean whatever rises and falls is going to be what we like, <laughs> or it's going to be happy, or it's going to be blissful. It's just going to be what it is. And then that gives us the space to naturally respond to whatever's present and how we respond might be our softness and our compassion and our befriending, or it might be the place where we create a boundary or we create a determination or we create a fiery, deliberate injection of our belief for the greater good in ourselves, you know, so which might be considered masculine. So that ability to make room for our natural response to arise for me starts with landing, arriving in the present, relaxing on purpose, creating space, and pausing enough to listen really deeply so that when we respond, we respond from whichever quality is really needed in the moment. And we all have our feminine and masculine, but you know, designed to fit our our personal journey in whatever way that means. So I am actually now, you know, over 25 years into my yoga journey, really welcoming all the energies that I was brought into the world with and making room for my masculine and my feminine to arise in the moment. Yeah. <clears throat> I had so many thoughts during that. <laughs> Uh, wasn't that wasn't really a pointed response? I think I wandered through that, but um, feel free to narrow me in. I loved it. Um, I had so many thoughts come up, but yeah, it's so interesting. I I remember um, 
sitting in ceremony or in circle and um, being asked about masculine energy and um, everyone went around to give a few uh descriptions of what masculine meant to them. And many of them were, you know, very negative. Um, and so I think in the healing space, we can have a tendency to be like masculine equals patriarchy equals bad. Um, but then society is like masculine means get shit done and productivity <laughs> and this is good. And so we have these like really polarized views of what masculine energy is and I think 2020 has taught me more about polarity than any other year of my life yeah yeah I might say that's probably where I'm focused on study at the moment is um making room for not only polarity and but paradox and contradiction and um realizing that there are many things can be true at the same time mm-hmm and it all depends on, you know, where we're showing up and where we're coming from. But um, this was a lesson all along, all these 20 years that I've been studying with Pema Chodron, the lesson has always been from, from her. Um, until we make space for contradiction and paradox, we will be suffering. Until we say there, until we can get over that the reality is not this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is bad. That our desire to label things as such, good, bad, right, wrong, I want this, I don't want that. We will just stay circling and circling and circling. Um, now, with that in mind, there is a way to be in relationship that creates less harm for ourselves and those we're in relationship with. I mean, there's a lot of big questions in that statement, of course. And who defines well-being and how. Mm -hmm. But to the best of our ability, if we are looking for a sense of wholeness and well-being in ourselves, in those we have relationship with, in the environment for all beings, it's going to take a lot of space and a lot of acceptance that there's going to be a lot of paradox and contradiction in that. And still yet we have to rise in that moment and make the best choice we can about how we're going to meet and interact in relationship to that moment. So coming back to creating space to be able to even see the polarity instead of to be blinded by our choice of which polar opposite we're on, to see the polarity so we can choose how to be with it is a big part, I think, of my journey right now. And it seems to be very thematic in the level of consciousness of um, those I'm interacting with. Totally. From a tarot perspective, 2020, if we break it down, is 2020 and, and 20 is the judgment card. <laughs> and the judgment card is about judgment, right? It's about our judgments um, on kind of like the human level. But there's also this energy of like rebirth, rising above these energies of like black and white and right and wrong and good and bad and coming into like that higher consciousness where like you were saying, Pima is 
asking us to cultivate this energy of like holding space for all of it um, without necessarily identifying. Yeah. Could I, could I break in on that? Is, um, it reminds me, just because you use the word rising above, and I understood how you used it, but it reminds me that maybe younger in my journey, I assumed rising above was also, it's a particular polarity. I'm going to arise above this mishigas, whatever it is we might call it. Mm-hmm. And from my uh, view up here is another place I might cast judgment from about what's going on well or not down there. Whereas the current view now is that rising above, with, without all of our healing, right? Without the trauma of your brother's suicide and the trauma of your birth story and all that it entails in, in moving and relationship, without the trauma of um, several uh, devastating health issues that I have had and lots of real family um, challenges, when we rise up, we wouldn't be able to see our humanity. Mm-hmm. But because we allowed ourselves to really be in those traumas and heal through them not over them that taking the human knowing our suffering in these traumas if we remember to relate to all humans like so those who are acting in a way that we polarize as bad are people who are suffering in one way or another so the rising up makes room for seeing the humanity of of the continued effort to polarize and choosing then to interact in a way that holds compassion for everybody's story but still make choices that we now know might be helpful for the way we at least interact with it instead of coming from our own place of stress. Mm-hmm. So not... I The word that came to mind when you were when you were saying about like rising up. Um, so we're not spiritual bypassing, right? Correct, <laughs> exactly. Rising above this and looking down on it and being like, oh, look at these fools. <laughs> They're right. like me, but rather being able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes to see the world through their eyes, which is so interesting. And I feel like we're being forced to do this in a way, or at least for me in my own experience, like, looking at what's happening in the world, well, many close to me, many of where I come from, support the other side, have these opposing views. The people who love me, right? Or were, you know, the people who I know, my blood, my flesh, um, feel very, very differently than I do. And so how do we do this? Because then I am a walking contradiction as we all are, right? perception is reality. Yeah. I think most of us have at least someone close to us that are, that is some in some way or shape on the other side. Mm-hmm. Right. And Pema Chojin uses this great term of all the othering mm-hmm. that we do. And Tara Brock talks a lot about that as well. The othering that we do. And yeah, there are some really combative, unhealthy destructive, harmful things that the others do, from whichever perspective you're looking at, you know? 
Like it's very, I feel very righteous in saying the other ones are the harmful ones. But we all know that from the other perspective, there's a very similar righteousness that those people are harming. So knowing that that is the reality, right? That's the reality. And knowing that we've, we, you know, you and I, and probably anybody who's drawn to listen to us together talking, has experienced suffering and pain. That from the point of view of serving, serving evolution, serving ourselves, serving the wholeness of humanity, is that we use our suffering to remember our sameness Mm -hmm. rather than othering. And so even though we disagree with the pain that they cause and the chaos that they cause, whoever they might be, that if we also hold true the sameness of our suffering, we might have a different way of entering that conversation. The whoever can rise to a consciousness to remember our personal suffering is the sameness of whoever we're in conflict with then in our remembering, we have that responsibility to bring that level of consciousness to whatever we bring to the conversation and however we choose to react and respond. It doesn't mean to be complicit when we see harm. It doesn't mean to let things go and to baby an other because we have compassion for them. It might mean we create stronger boundaries, but it does mean that we have a level of responsibility and consciousness to remember that their actions are also coming from the same suffering that we experience. And it just might change the way we interact and it just might change the way they interact without them even having the intention to behave differently. I don't know. It's the only thing we got. (laughs) Yeah. And how much action and like then coming back to the practice and how important it is um, to have that foundation of self-trust and self-safety and self-security because I mean to even think about entering into that conversation is triggering, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Myself, I have to boundary myself. Yeah. Defend myself, you know, and and that's where it starts. Yeah. That begins right with all of that defensiveness. And, yes, yes. Uh, we don't have that internal pos- positioning mm-hmm. of a place to go back to that mm-hmm. safe. And I had um, a conflict. I'll call it. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. I had a conflict with my father recently this summer. Um, and you know, it was an argument, but, uh, for the first time, probably ever with, with him anyway, I, I, I realized that I was able to come back to myself and find, um, and be okay without needing him to change at all. Mm. You know that's my journey, right? <laughs> you know that's my whole TED Talk. <laughs> no, really, that's my TED Talk. And about my dad. Yeah. And changing. Oh, yeah, no, literally, it's about... With him, yeah. Yeah, it's about coming back to myself and breathing and changing my response without him having to ever change at all, but how that changed the way I related to him which is what changed our relationship, which is exactly what I'm 
saying, you just summed it up beautifully in that having that safe place to return to. And so to demystify this, and instead of saying we have to become superhuman and be compassionate about people that we feel are creating great harm to the planet and and the human beings on the planet, instead of creating some ideal that we have to be soft with danger mm-hmm. is really all we're talking about is can we calm our nervous system enough so that we can create a sense of safety in our bodies by feeling the support under our bodies, literally the ground, by feeling our breath move through our body so that our brain gets the message, pause, let me literally turn on the part of my brain, we'll call it the prefrontal cortex, so that I can make a decision on how I'm going to respond to this moment with a wide range of possibilities so that I might not escalate this situation. Even if I have to be really precise about my boundary, that I don't, that I don't escalate it, but I can create some level of... Um, change in the way I might meet this moment with being able to be more articulate or more silent, Mm. be more soft or more hard, but without that ability to come back to ourselves and remember that whatever we're interacting with is made of the same stuff. We will just constantly react from that, from that same exact place of uh, protection of fight and flight. And we will just keep meeting the moment together with, um, what we'll just call it some sort of war. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I feel like we went like way, way up right away, but I want to pull it back down for a moment. Um, because uh, you just reminded me, right. Of like the actual physical part of the practice. Um, which is where it started, you know, that that started for me. That's probably where it starts with most. And then, you know, it builds out and there's like emotional and energetic and all of this. But can you talk a little bit about that physical part of the practice? And I've been revisiting it recently, um, diving into some some deep trauma and inner child healing, but feeling my my body activated um, and just had like a little round of um, anxiety again that that had been, you know, I thought I would put that away. I thought I put that to bed years ago. Um, and then here it came. Um, and so just from a physical standpoint, how does restorative yoga, how does this practice our body to to relax yeah so thank you because I do think that any of the material we talked about starts with feeling ourselves in our body feeling our body supported um staying with ourselves staying with our breath even if it's at the cost of not contemplating anything bigger than my body on the ground So like not how to save the world, but how to be with my body on the ground, not how to end this escalated argument, but being with my body on the ground, not having to change my father's mind, but being with my body on the ground and being with my breath. I think that our highest responsibility is our own nervous systems and that we're in charge of regulating our own nervous systems. 
the world cannot, the world regulates our nervous system. We can't give the world that power in a way that we will be completely disconnected from ourselves and our well-being. So the physical practice does that. And my personal definition of restorative may be a little bit different than maybe some of the going literature that is now out and we'll call it the marketplace. Like, I don't believe that restorative yoga has to be complete stillness, especially there's a lot of nervous systems that will never feel safe being still. And therefore, stillness is not the marker of a restorative yoga practice. For me, a restorative yoga practice is one that allows us to work with our nervous system to downregulate from the stress response to the relaxation response. And we all might need something a little different. Some of us might need a little bit of movement. Some of us might need a little bit of sound. Some of us might need a little bit of focusing on something in our mind. But inherently, the basic principle is paying attention to support what's under your body, whether it be bolsters or blankets or pillows or a chair or a couch or the earth or grass or sand or the floor. And literally studying how am I relating to something solid that's holding me up? Am I allowing my body to be in relationship with the ground? Am I allowing the earth to hold me? We cannot calm ourselves unless we sense support. Support equals safety. Safety is a prerequisite for relaxation. There are so many ways that we are not safe out in the world, but there is a ground under us. There is solid support under our body. So step number one is simply the practice of bringing our awareness down to wherever we connect with physical, literal support, tangible, tactical, tacti- tacti- <laughs> tactile, <laughs> tactile support and studying that and practicing, how do I let my weight on the ground? How do I stop holding myself up? Where, if I'm in bed at night, here's, here's a truth. Still, I probably did it last night. Just because there's a bed under me doesn't mean I'm letting it hold me up. I still go through a process of letting go of my legs, letting go of my seat, letting go of my ribs, letting go of my arms, letting go of my head until I actually fall into the support of the bed. We could be on our bed and basically be levitating off the mattress in one way or another by the way we grip and hold ourselves up. Like a ba- sleeping baby. You can have a toddler running around and pick it up and the toddler's going to be one particular weight. You could take the toddler out of the car after a long car ride and they're sleeping and they are 20 pounds heavier. Are we learning to give our weight to the ground? Once we study that, that alone could be a lifelong practice. I do it all day long still. Once we remember that we can return to the ground, we can make room for our breath. So step number two of this physical, literal practice is not saving the world. It's landing and then making room for our breath. If we could let our breath flow more freely and deeply, not short and shallow, our nervous system begins to get the message, all right, things are looking a little safer. Let's Breathe a little deeper. Let's start to switch systems. And not only does our diaphragm move more full, which sends a message to our body and stimulates our body in so many ways from digestion to immunity to growth and repair, reproduction, all these sorts of health systems start to 
be more optimized. But most importantly, for the sake of this conversation, what we'll call the vagus nerve, which maybe you've talked about here, gets a message that goes right up to the brain that says, we now are in a safer situation and we can start to turn on the part of our brain that allows us to begin to interact with the environment in a more safe way. We don't have to save the world. We have to land on the ground and allow our breath to deepen. Then we start to notice, oh, wait, I'm still gripping. And we relax on purpose. We let go of our shoulders. We let go of our jaw. We let go of our belly. And all of a sudden, we set the conditions to see a little more clearly what's happening instead of reacting from a place of being triggered. And we're not talking about real deep trauma. We're talking about everyday anxiety right now because there's a little, there's a, there's a, a different path to working with more embedded trauma. But we all have everyday anxiety. We all running around protecting ourselves all day long. Land on the ground, make room for our breath, relax on purpose. We now, basically we open the curtains and we're looking out the wide view window and we can see the whole sky. We can see the weather pattern. We can see who's walking by. We go, oh, this is what's happening right now. How would I like to step into this present moment mindfully and on purpose? And so restorative yoga is relating to our props, setting up the body so it makes room for our breath, bringing our mind to pay attention to the movement of our breath, and then looking for areas of tension in our body where we can soften and relax on purpose. And it's just literally setting the conditions to be present. And then our job becomes, how do I stay and be mindful with what I find in the present, because it might not be what I want to find. So one of the big myths is, oh, when you relax, you'll feel really good. Oh, when you relax, everything will be great. Oh, when you relax, you'll just be wonderful. No, when you relax, you'll be more clear to see what's really there. It might be anger, sadness, pain, grief, happiness, joy, celebration. We don't know. But then we can tend to soothe ourselves when we find something that needs soothing, allow for celebration when we find something that is joyful, right? We, we, we tend to spend just as much energy stopping our happiness as we do avoiding our pain. So the conditions of restorative yoga set the scene for us to then be in relationship with the present moment and make choices of how to interact, which is the second really deeper part of the practice. Mm-hmm. Then we save the world. Yeah. And I feel like that's also, you know, where I start to see and feel like the work of, um, that you infuse into the practice, like, um, with Pima Shojin and Shodron, I can never say her last name, and yeah. like the Buddhist practices of like acceptance and compassion. And like you were saying, these things come up and they're not always cute. Um, but we can greet them or learn to with a sense of open heartedness um, or learn not to push them away. Um, yeah. And so how did you find that? Because I think that's also like the like really magical piece of the experience with you. And, you know, for the listeners, Jillian has these workshops and these, these classes and it's like, you know, you set the stage, you know, you get us present, you get us aware, um, but you also bring us into the heart. Um, and we, we start to attune to these different 
parts of ourselves and, and communicate with them. Like you said, be in relationship with them. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you, how you came? Yeah. Well, definitely I was introduced through my, my work with Pema Chodron and, um, and I love again, Tara Brock's work and Sharon Salzberg's work. And I am quite influenced by that Buddhist path in that way. But to also sort of um, make this, in case that, that, that triggers any sort of dogmatism in anybody's ear, really the basic practices, you know, with no lineage or religion attached, it's learning how not to exaggerate what we find, how not to amplify it and exaggerate it and be in, you know, dialogue where we stretch the storyline, repeat, 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 or ignore it diminish it. So not to exaggerate or diminish. So how do we enter into that space? And I almost like the word acceptance. You know, I use it a lot, but I think the quality of acceptance for some people, they interpret it as um, surrender and um, uh, mm, well, I'm not even quite sure how to explain it, but I'd just like to qualify the word acceptance with a word like allowing um, or including so that whatever we feel, we acknowledge as the way we feel and what we see, it's included in the reality rather than um, over-exaggerated or ignored. And that's what we're talking about when we say acceptance. It doesn't mean like... I have, if like we're in an abusive relationship where we are getting um, physically abused or mentally abused, emotionally abused, accepting doesn't mean staying in the relationship, but it doesn't mean, acceptance means not avoiding that that is the truth of what's happening and that I feel this particular way about it, which then might give you the information that you need to know, the inspiration that you need to respond to it in a way that's going to create more healing and protection in your life. So we might be abused in some particular way and either we're pretending we're not or we're combating it back. There might be a choice that we have to make that starts with accepting that this is the reality. So the word acceptance, just just to really like um, highlight it for a moment. The practice is to land and find support, to breathe and initiate the fluid, deep, natural rhythmic breath, to relax on purpose so that we can listen, so that we can pay attention and see the reality of the present moment. What's really happening? What are the conditions? Which then allows us, right, that acceptance, that allowance, that listening, it's a very open, wholehearted practice But then that allows us to um, respond. A lot of times responding, we don't know how we're going to respond or how we should respond. That's one of the hardest parts. There's nothing wrong with repeating the whole process all over again. The response might be, I have to refine my ground. I have to refine my breath. I have to re-relax. I have to open to this present moment again. Action, I might have to repeat that all again. And you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it enough until the action you take is the action that arises from that balanced place, which might be more masculine, back to that conversation, or might be more feminine, where we're not saying, I can't fight back because I'm not, I'm not engaging my masculine part anymore. So I'm not going to take a stand and use that. Um, and we're finding today's day, like 
we have to rise with both of those abilities that we all have in the moment. And we don't know which one's going to be called upon. And we all have, we are all predisposed to have a little bit more of one or the other. Um, so in order to know who to show up with, we'll circle this all the way back around. We set the conditions to show up so that how we respond, we have more options, more behavioral options. So just to take a back step into the physical practice, the neurological piece of this is we don't have those behavioral options if we're in the stress response. If we're in the stress response, we're limited to the behavior options of fight, flight, or freeze. So we're limited to aggression, withdrawal, or avoidance. If we want to choose our response, we have to shut off that habitual fight or flight, sympathetic amygdala in the moment or the behavior options we have are left in fight, flight, or freeze. So really what we're doing in this practice, if we're talking about it from a Western view, is we are landing on the ground, deepening our breath and relaxing our body to shut off the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, and turn on the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest the, ten, the more compassionate befriending choices so that we can choose how to step into the present moment with whatever the circumstances are. So we're not responding from a place of habit, stress, or fear. fear. So really the nutshell is restorative yoga is a practice that not only makes us feel more comfortable in our body, um, but in the end gives us more options about how we want to choose to be in relationship with ourselves and others, the environment and the present moment. Mm. That's what it is for me anyway. And and regulation is like a word that kept coming up as you were speaking. Like first we learn to physically regulate our nervous system. And then we learn, or, or for me anyway, I've learned to emotionally regulate. We're not always modeled or, you know, given the opportunity to have somebody teach us emotional regulation. Uh, that wasn't in my like school books. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, and, you know, learning about, you know, how we attune to each other and we need that, that process of regulation and integration. And yeah, it's... That's a great point because not only are we not taught about it in school, we're not, we're not only not taught about it in our families, we, we are often dysregulated by our families. And our families didn't have those tools, so they didn't know emotional regulation. And so we come from dysregulation. And I think that part of this, this moment on the planet is for us to learn this so that yeah. we it down to the future generations so that they have that internal ability. Yeah. I think the, 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 the secret beauty is that if we can calm our nervous system on the spot instead of escalating we see the other person as human and we see our sameness and we still might choose what's needed in that moment is a certain kind of defense or a certain kind of offense if it's needed or a certain kind of um, coming together. But if we're in the stress response, we can't see the other person as anything but other. That's how the brain works in 
the stress response. So if we want to start behaving in the world from that place of paradox and polarity being all a reality, it takes emotional regulation for the very basis of seeing the sameness of the human condition and the human experience. So everything is not a threat. (laughs) Like, so every, all the external things are not constantly a threat. Sometimes they are, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think though, um, I think what I mean is, um, again, I'm not trying to say there's not a lot of current threats that we have to respond to, you know, now, right now, more than in the past years of my life, we're, we're having a lot more, you know, with my child being, um, with my child being trans, there's a lot of hate and a lot of medical uh, disadvantages and a lot of systematic things that, you know, really could create harm in our lives. That's a small little piece of what's going on, on the planet for so many people, whether it's race or gender or sexuality or, um, or uh, social economics standards. You know, there are many people being, uh, how, we're, how people are attacked is being brought into view right now more than ever and how laws are being made to help people he- be well or not mm-hmm. is really under the spotlight at the moment. So there are a lot of voices and a lot of action that has to be taken for the well-being of many people right now. So I don't mean calm the nervous system at the risk of not responding when we're alerted to with these days. But we can't create effective responses from the same nervous system that is causing that mm-hmm. attack. Yes. It feels to me the way that I kind of view it is um, an expansiveness of our options in each moment. Yeah, we're being, we're being welcomed, invited, and forced to expand our capacity to participate in the bigness of this life, those who are able to hear that call and respond. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to ignore. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 2021, we're in 2021 now. Um, Actually, oh my God, my clock says... 1221. Oh, nice. Oh, it just turned to 222, which is angels. So here we are. (laughs) Um, How, I guess, how, what is your, I always like to ask, um, what does your daily practice look like? Like, what are some, obviously, the restorative, um, but what are some other ways that this practice like infiltrates your life and what are some of your best like tips and tools for just managing what is a very heightened <laughs> energetic load? Yeah, well, there's no way around it. If I don't practice, the days I don't practice, 
are not my best days. Uh, there's, there's no way around that answer. You know, everybody wants to know how little they can practice, uh, how little they can do for the big results. And I mean, but here's the thing is once you start practicing, even if it's 20 minutes a day, um, even if it's several times a day for three minutes, which is what I like to recommend most that people can really do portable practices all day long. Those are my go-to, which I'll tell you in a moment. But there's no way around, if you don't practice, whatever we practice, we get good at, period. So if we're practicing being in the stress response, being habitual and being busy and being stressed, we will get better at being stressed and being busy and being habitual. If we want to break that habit and make room to feel better, to interact in a more nourishing way, to care for ourselves and open up possibilities of behavior towards ourselves as well as each other. It takes practice. Now, practice doesn't mean a big commitment. So for me, I mean, my ideal morning um, is at least a 20-minute meditation. That's when I'm at my best. But I, I meditate if I have 10 minutes. I meditate if I have five minutes. I don't skip it. I meditate for three breaths several times a day. Sometimes I set my cell phone every two hours and I pause for three breaths. Um, I always teach those in my classes and my workshops to my students right now on um, my meditations with, uh, that I share. I'm doing these three breath techniques for like a few minutes and then invite um, you to practice just for three breaths several times a day. And I think that that is essential. But if I can do a movement practice for anywhere between five and 40 minutes, and a meditation practice anywhere also between five and 40 minutes and a stillness practice between five and 40 minutes. So my practice might be 15 minutes, five of each, five minutes of each, or as long as, you know, a half hour of each. But those three components I do daily. And um, lately I've been enjoying a rebounder. <laughs> and lately I've been noticing that the more movement um, more movement is important to me where uh, that's not always important to me. Sometimes more stillness is important to me. So the other piece is um, there's no perfect way and there's no, there's no um, perfect formula that, but adjusting the practice day by day. So I wake up, I set my alarm and um, I do my best not to turn on my phone before I practice. I think that is really key. If I don't practice in the morning, if I turn on my phone first, I practice goes away. Mm. So I wake up, I meditate, I move, I'm a little still, I meditate and I finish. And that's that and I and my and I've gotten back to my writing in the past year, which sometimes takes a little hit. And if you're not a writer, I recommend just writing down what you have gratitude for every day, even if it's one sentence to five sentence, but there's something about hand to paper writing within your meditation and yoga practice that helps you digest, you know, it's a, it's a body, mind, breathing experience that writing, that manual, physical mind through body to hand thing really makes an impact on my ability to know how I'm feeling to say hello to myself, to connect with myself. Without it, I haven't made full contact. Mm -hmm. I love how you say, say hello to myself. Um, one of my favorite um, words, and I 
I have your words in my mouth <laughs> still always throughout my teachings because they have influenced me so much and invited so much healing into my um, system. But um, I love when you say, welcome, welcome mm. yourself into this space, welcome your breath into your body, welcome. Um, because it just feels like, again, this relationship, this relationship that we get to have with ourselves, um, very personal and very intimate. And that intimacy um, has really helped me find more intimacy with and connection with the people around me in my life. And it's been so, I'm, I feel so blessed to have um, met you and incorporated these teachings. So. I think you just said the summary of our whole conversation, which is, um, I think I said that my biggest study before was the polarity and the contradiction, but it's matched by this word intimacy. And I heard Esther Perel break down that word into in to me see and we are all painfully craving that level of connection and intimacy and the more I practice the truth is is that that intimacy established through our own connection to ourselves is the foundation and the basis of the intimacy that we are craving with others and at the heart of the spiritual path, because when we drop into that deep intimacy, we do feel our sameness and our connectedness and our vastness. Um, so we, we go in to feel how expansive we actually are. And the other thing that always resonates with me is, um, how you say we we shift right and then and this practice doesn't just affect us it, it affects every single person that we come into contact with and and that's something i remember every single time i do it and i share with others and exactly what you just said like we become more expansive and then we can expand together and and connect um Thank you so much for taking time to sit with me today. Um, before we end, can you tell the listeners how to practice with you, where to find you, um, how to buy your book, which is beautiful and amazing, and all of your resources? Mm, well, thank you. I've loved pausing and taking time with you here and connecting. So thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me to be here with you and um, with, with your community. So thank you everybody for listening. And um, I am teaching on Zoom pretty regularly, at least Fridays for now. And everything's on my website at jillianpransky.com. So J-I-L-L-I-A-N-P-R-A-N-S-K-Y.com. Um, and I do offer workshops and I have an upcoming teacher training, a restorative yoga teacher training that's 80 hours and it is uh, recognized also with Yoga Alliance credits. Um, and I'm uh, working through the Yoga Therapist Association for those credits, but we'll see how that goes. Just not yet. But yeah, most everything's on my website. And my book can be brought, bought wherever books are sold and easily on Instagram or any of the online bookstores. And it's deep listening. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. 
For the listeners, I'll link all of Jillian's information in the show notes and stay tuned for a forecast for the upcoming new moon in Capricorn. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second portion of the show. I am going to give you tarot for for the upcoming new moon in Capricorn. So this new moon is happening here in Nashville, Tennessee on Wednesday, January 13th. And a new moon happens when the sun and the moon are conjunct in the same sign at the same tree. It happens once a month. And this is the beginning of the new and cycle. New moons are the dark moon when we cannot see the moon. And I associate this rest and stillness and as a time to really plant seeds of And so offer ceremony every new and full moon. If you'd like to join me via Zoom, come into the virtual space and join us and our community. We hold space that intention there. Um, I offer tarot and Reiki, and it's just a really beautiful time to get. Okay, so just a few announcements. My spirit sessions are available to book. So if you're interested in one sessions, start customized you. I offer energetic healings virtual counseling, I play cards, and I really incorporate any other forms and modalities of healing based on and where you're at the moment. So I meet where you are and together cultivate and create full experience. Um, focus on integrating and attuning to whatever lessons are present for you now at this time. So spirit sessions and book on my website. I am also offering a Reiki level two attunement and training Sunday, January 17th. If you are already um, attuned to level one and you would like to learn the symbols and how to offer distance healing, um, join us for Reiki level two. Uh, it's going to be virtual and we'll be sending Reiki via distance as I've been doing all of 2020. Thank God for distance healing. Um, and yeah, it's just a beautiful way to be able to offer healing energy when you can't be one-on-one -on -one in person. So it's definitely been pivotal for me this year. Um, and I have a few spots left in there. So if you'd like to join, um, yeah, just head to my events page on my website, shoot me an email. I just like to get a feel for, um, who you are and where you're at in your practice and then go from there. And then lastly, I am offering Reiki master level, um, 
attunements. And I'm going to be doing this in a one-on-one mentorship. And so my sacred soul mentorship still exists in its original format. Um, and it's still customized one-on-one work. But if you are someone who has already been attuned to Reiki level one and two, and maybe you've even studied the tarot in depth and, um, you really want to go deeper into a master level, this is a little bit different. Um, Um, This is where I not only attune you to level three, but then we do level four, which is the mastership, which means that you can give attunements to others. And then we go deeper into some other forms like crystal healing and sound healing and ancestral healing and these kinds of things. So if you're interested in doing a uh, Reiki master level training one-on-one, um, go ahead. It's, it's under my sacred soul mentorship and all the details are there for you. Okay, you guys, so let's talk a little bit about this new moon coming up in Capricorn. Um, There's also, I think it's a square with Mercury and Pluto. So this, there's a lot happening on that day. And, um, you know, it's strange because Capricorn is this really like sturdy, steady earth energy that is associated with the material plane. And, you know, we see the devil card um, associated with Capricorn, which can show us where we're bound, right? Not where we are bound because others have bound us, but where we tend to like bound ourselves, what we tend to kind of tie ourselves to or hold ourselves to. um, That's more to our detriment than to our growth. However, the forecast that I pulled for us seems to take us a little bit deeper beyond the material plane. And, um, you know, with that Mercury and Pluto square, I think it's a square. I'm sorry if I'm wrong about that, but, um, it's taking us more uh, like into our inner psyche and, um, maybe even into some shadow work or changing the way that we are communicating. Um, and so it's really interesting and I'm kind of excited to see how these themes unfold throughout, uh, this new moon phase, which is starting on Wednesday and then the, the two weeks that follow. Okay. So I'm just going to dive right in. And, um, for the theme of this new moon, I pulled the King of Wands reversed with the veil is thin from postcards with the liminal space. Um, I find this really interesting because the last full moon that we had in Cancer, I pulled the Queen of Wands reversed. So we're still working in this similar, very similar energy of the reversal of the wands. And when we see wands cards in reversal, we we need to look at what happens when fire becomes imbalanced and how we can really work with that. So an abundance of fire or fire in a more shadow energy tends to look a little bit aggressive, a little bit controlling, a little bit reactive, right? It's when we um, are really quick to temper, really quick to frustrate, and maybe become very impatient, right? So there's varying levels that this can come through as. I think for most of us who have a bit more regular 
situation, we're just going to look at our reactions, right? Where we tend to react instead of respond, um, but on a deeper level or a more extreme level, I should say, um, we might even see like aggression or violence or like a really deep desire to control our external circumstances, um, and this coming through with the veil is thin. You know, whenever I'm, I'm seeing this card, the veil is thin. It is a picture of a Ouija board, which is really funny. Um, and it's about interpreting messages from beyond, right? And so what these two cards say together is like, we will start to receive messages, maybe from beyond, maybe from our intuition, or maybe just through our own communications and experiences. It's like, a veil will be lifted and we will be able to see what we haven't seen before. So we may be able to see some of these patterns, some of these reactions and you know where they get triggered. Often we don't know we're triggered until like way, way after the whole experience takes place. And you know, we, we have this reaction and then we have these emotions about it and then it wraps up into this whole situation. And it isn't till much later that we can look back and say like, Ooh, there was that trigger point. Right. And, and we can really pinpoint that moment when, um, you know, the reaction started and maybe we can even pinpoint, um, what it was or what was said or the feeling that came up in a specific situation that triggered that reaction, whether it was a physical reaction or an emotional reaction, whatever it was. Okay. So really looking deeply and becoming more aware of what is causing these reactions and, and why, right? And then it's very interesting. I'm going to give you the, the next few, um, cards that I pulled in the spread because I'm seeing another theme here in what we are releasing for the position in the center of the spread. I'm asking what is going to be released for this new moon. And I'm pulling the seven of cups in the reverse position with um, the liminal space card. What is chaos to the fly is harmony to the spider. And then in what is being brought in. So what energy we are cultivating for this new moon are, um, or moving into in the future is the wheel of fortune with God is a goddess. And what I see here is the wheel, a circle, a spiral in three out of four of these cards, right? So the wheel of fortune is a wheel, right? Um, in this deck, the wild unknown, it actually looks like a dream catcher. And then God is a goddess. The image is actually of a Tibetan mandala, a circular mandala, the sand mandala. Um, and then what is chaos to the fly is harmony to the spider. Um, you know, we see a spider web. So another spiral, another circle. And this is reminding me of cycles, of karmic cycles, um, of what comes up must come down, what goes up must come down, um, of the spiral, the sacred spiral of birth and death and rebirth, right? And so um, there's a bit of like karmic energy here, a bit of um, circular movement. 
And this is, I think, a reminder that like we are continuing on this spiral of life, death, and rebirth. And that like every turn around the wheel, we get closer and closer to the center and we may have to revisit old lessons and it may feel like we're moving backwards, but actually we're each time around, even though similar lessons or patterns or situations may come up, we're learning them on a deeper and deeper level, right? That's what the wheel of fortune really allows us to do is to continue moving deeper and deeper. Like they say, peeling the layers of the onion one at a time, getting closer and closer to the center. So coming back to what we're releasing, you know, the seven of cups in the reverse position, another card about illusion, um, which I pulled last week as well, we're releasing these things that keep us the, the veil on, you know, illusion is our is a matter of perception. And this is also um, a theme in what is chaos to the fly is harmony to the spider, right? So with the fly sees as complete chaos and death, the spider sees as lunch and beauty, you know, and the result of all of its, its tireless work. And this is a beautiful thing you guys, um, because the cards here are asking us to release the perspectives that hold us back or that keep us in this illusionary um, situation where we're looking at the chaos around our lives. And I mean, listen, you don't have to look far to see chaos in this moment, Um, whether it is in your personal situation or from more of a collective standpoint, you don't have to look far to see chaos. But what if we come at it with the understanding that behind this is harmony, that this chaos is happening for the sake of harmony, that in order to create more light we have to we have to shine light on the shadow and you know with what's happening it is deep deep shadow work you guys and you know if you are listening to this and you're most likely of the same viewpoints as me um when it comes to you know what your beliefs are and um what happened last week on the 6th was was traumatic and it was chaotic and it was um the result of you know people with very very strong belief systems that have resulted to um what i was describing in this fire energy control and violence and so to be able to witness that and not feel a little bit heightened in the nervous system and not feel scared and not feel like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on? Um, These are just normal reactions, right? But what if we can also access the higher self that can see that maybe there is some order, maybe there is some other perspective of being able to shine light onto this shadow. And it is shadow work for all of us. It is shadow work for all of us. And it's really important to know that because I think it can be easy to be like, look at those crazy ass mofos. What are they doing? 
This isn't about me. This is about other people who need to change. Da, 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 da. But this is America's shadow. And if you live here or if you live wherever you live, if you're watching this, like the part of you that is disgusted by this these actions is a part of you that is wounded in this area. And like, for me, it brings up a lot of internalized shame. Um, when I see this, because many of, you know, the family members that I know and and where I come from, you know, they stand in support of this 45 and, uh, you know, there is, there is shadow there, you know, there is shame there. And so how do we greet it within ourselves? And, and I think that bringing it down into the personal level and cultivating, like I was speaking about with Jillian, a safe place for that to land is really, really important for us now. Really, really important to make sure that you are cultivating practices within yourself to have a safe space to land, to be able to hold whatever this is bringing up, fear, shame, exasperation, overwhelm, whatever it is, to be able to hold it and have a safe space for it to land and maybe see that despite so much polarity and contradiction, that there is still sameness and there can still come harmony out of this chaos. Okay, then moving into the Wheel of Fortune with God as a goddess. Um, You know, we're looking at Wheel of Fortune, we're looking at expansion, we're looking at continuation of karmic cycles. And with God as a goddess, we're looking at non-attachment. You know, we're looking at um, being able to witness what's going on around us and what's going on within us with non-attachment. And this is huge, you guys. I I found myself having um, some anxiety uh, this week and not really knowing how to place it, not really knowing um, if it was from just like the stress of what was going on or if it was something just like within me or I don't know, I'm holding a Reiki attunement for other people and the mind just starts going, you know, it's like, what is this about? Why am I feeling this? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong to have this feeling, this anxiety Where am I not taking care of myself? The mind just completely wants to start to shift into blame and resolve. And how am I going to fix this? And, you know, it's just exhausting. And so what can I do? The moment that I really start to say to myself, hmm, I don't know where this anxiety came from, but it's going to be okay. Maybe it's not your fault. And and maybe we can just work with this now and you know we can do some movements and get outside and you know the moment i decide not to attach to that anxiety and shame myself for it but just to witness it with some curiosity and like a lot a lot of compassion maybe it's not my fault um And if it is, that's okay too, you know, like shit's crazy right now. And how can I create um, space for this without the labels, 
without the immediate need to do something about it, to fix it, to change it. It's just a form of resistance anyway. And then what we resist persists. So like, how can we really get close to it and just be soft with ourselves? Wheel of Fortune is again reminding us that death and chaos are a part of rebirth and that if we label one as, you know, malicious and and one as good, it's just, we're just going to keep spinning and spiraling like the rat on the wheel. We, We are moving out of this polarized way of thinking. And I I wish I had more clarity and more answers with how, but the feeling that I'm getting is just like, we've got to continue making this space, bringing it back inside, creating this internal space to hold our polarity and our contradiction with love, with compassion. Okay, you guys, so um, I wrote a little bit about this in my newsletter too, and one last theme that really came through for me was like ego versus intuition, and this is on like a more personal level, Um, the way that we can start to see through this veil is to start to recognize what is coming from the ego, what is coming from this place of fear and control and blame. And what is intuition? What feels a little bit more like a feeling or a knowing? And the more that we can discern between these two parts of ourselves, the more that we can learn to respond. Um, And so learning that the ego is loud and really, really wants shit done right now and is calling us to immediate action um, and defensiveness. Um, And then that the intuition is much more quiet, really feels more like a feeling or a gentle knowing. Um, And when we start to discern between these two, we can start to... um, cultivate a space maybe between um, our reactions, right? Uh, between the action and the reaction. Um, so yeah, it's it's deep this week, you know, it's 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 beyond the material um, and really looking into our psyche and um, really starting to unearth some things that are ready to go and and really um, expanding our consciousness beyond the ego, cultivating more self-trust. All right, you guys. So I hope that this serves you. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it um, or rate it or offer some of your support in some way. It's so appreciated. Um, And I, I hope that this does support you in some way. Take good care of yourselves and I will, I will be with you again soon.